Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Please take a moment, check out my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and my Rumble channel, Richard Serrett, Strange Planet, the website, strangeplanet.ca. And a, a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters, Tim Sullivan, Deep Paul, and Jacob Ribyachuk, Ribachuk, in our uh, Star Chamber tier. Thank you very much, Tim, Deep Paul, and Jacob. Uh, your, uh, your generous support means so much to us here at Strange Planet. Biblical prophecy expert and author Ryan Peterson is here for the two hours, the full two hours to discuss the war between humans and Nephilim bloodlines. And we'll be exploring what he calls incompletely understood biblical passages about giants and why he believes these angelic beings were 100% real. Ryan is a biblical researcher, a writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. He received his BA from the University of Rochester and uh, his journalism degree from Columbia University Law School. Or sorry, his JD, not his uh, journalism degree. Is J.D. from uh, Columbia University. He resides in the New York City area with his family, and he is the author of Judgment of the Nephilim and his new one, The Final Nephilim. Ryan, welcome to the program. How are you? Richard, doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to try and move quickly here. So I want to talk about this idea of uh, the two – bloodlines, these two parallel bloodlines, the two seeds that we hear about in Genesis 3.15. You call this the ultimate prophecy as well, Genesis 3.15. Talk to me about that and the two bloodlines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it it really goes back to, again, as you said, Genesis 3.15, and we look at the Garden of Eden. Of course, everyone knows that account after Adam and Eve sinned. When God punished the serpent, the devil, he made an amazing prophecy, basically telling the devil that he would put that he, God, would put enmity or war between two seeds, the seed of the woman, meaning Eve, an ancestor, a descendant of Eve, and the seed of the serpent. And so in my first book, In Judgment of the Nephilim, I really go into detail about the seed of the woman, the Messiah. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah and the significance of that from the fallen angelic perspective, because this provided Satan a target. Now, knowing that prophecy, that his 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 defeat would come by the hand of a, of a human child born one day, a son who would be born one day, he set his sights on either destroying that Messiah, corrupting him, or preventing his birth. And so this is what leads us to the events of Genesis chapter 6, where uh, you know once the human population expanded and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and the human population grew, the amount of potential Messiahs, the potential, you know, uh, you know uh, really expanded. 
and Satan needed a large scale attack on the human race and human genetics. And this is why we see Genesis 6, a faction of the fallen angels, the sons of God, taking human women as wives, marrying them and fathering the Nephilim, half fallen angelic, half human hybrids who overran the world with violence in the days of Noah and who corrupted human genetics to try and make us something other than image bearers of God, other than human, to prevent the birth of a human messiah. So oh, the seed of the yep. woman is Mary has Jesus, but yes. So does that does that mean that the that that Satan also had a child? That he will, and that's the thing is that you know he, theologians, Bible teachers, uh, pastors, almost with universal consensus agree that the seed of the woman in Genesis three fifteen is. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the literal being, the person born from Mary. And so by the same interpretation, the verse is also saying that the devil is going to have his own seed. And I believe that seed of the serpent will be the Antichrist, who will be the final Nephilim. And that is the theme of my new book, that the final Nephilim is the Antichrist, who, of course, will rule over Earth for three and a half years during the Great Tribulation. Okay, so let's talk about prophecy and why prophecy is important. And and you talk about Isaiah 46, how important that is, because it really tells us everything we need to know about the existence of God. Absolutely. In Isaiah 46, God makes an amazing proclamation. He's rebuking the Israelites and telling them that if you want to know that I'm truly God, Yahweh, El Elyon, the Most High, above the fallen angels, above the demons, The way you can know that is by prophecy. God really rests his name on prophecy. And in Isaiah 46, he says that I have declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that will come to pass. So God God puts his own deity and his own reputation on the line on the basis of prophecy. And in that, we see two things, the importance of prophecy, but two, that God is letting us know that we can understand end times prophecy from looking at the earliest events in scripture as well. So this idea that the things that hath been, it is that which shall be. So uh, this cyclical nature, um, repetition, constant repetition, you call it ripples through time. Um, that's, you know, what's the other, uh, the, there's nothing new under the sun. So everything exactly. is repeating in the Bible. Exactly. And right. Ecclesiastes chapter one, there's no new thing under the sun. And and just as you said, the thing that the Bible, God is telling us that the earliest events in scripture will repeat. Sometimes we talk about a prophecy that might have a double fulfillment. But I believe that prophecies and types and shadows in scripture have multiple fulfillments through scripture. And the, you know, the examples I give, there are multiple types and foreshadows of Jesus Christ in scripture. We see it with Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. So Adam himself uh, is a type of Christ. Joseph, Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage to the promised land, Joshua. And so God repeats these events. And so to foreshadow and tell us to to prove that from from, from the earliest time, from the foundation of the world, he knows the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. And so I even refer to it as quantum repetition sometimes as well, the way that prophecies will repeat and ripple through time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, yeah, I want to jump ahead to to quantum, um, 
quantum superpositions, you call it. So this concept of the beginning is the end. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. Almost th- two things happening simultaneously. And, and you say this converges with quantum physics. So talk to me about how science through quantum physics confirms how God describes himself. Absolutely. So quantum physics, which is the the study of the subatomic world, of subatomic particles, you think of protons, electrons, neutrons, photons, the particles that make up light and matter itself. There is uh, a concept in quantum physics called quantum superposition, which is basically saying that a particle, a subatomic particle can exist in two states at the same time. I mean, an electron can be spinning it up and spinning down at the same time. And as, as complex as that sounds, I believe scripture has been revealing that about the nature of God. You gave one example already when Jesus says that he is alpha and omega, the beginning and the end at the same time. And something I really wanted to emphasize in the final Nephilim is that God exists outside of time. And when you think about that, when you think about that, it's how prophecy makes sense, how God can, of course, know the end from the beginning, because he exists in multiple times at simultaneously. And even even when you think about Jesus during his first advent on earth, he would say things like, I and the father are one. Even though, you know, they, they, God, the Father was in heaven, he sometimes would pray to the Father in heaven. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The concept of the Trinity itself is an example of quantum superposition, that they are three separate beings, yet they are one. And so I think that it's just amazing that just now the scientific world is just starting to peek into the spiritual realm and understand and starting to understand concepts that the Bible has explained for millennia. There's even a thought experiment in quantum physics called Schrodinger's cat, named after a famous quantum physicist that postulates an experiment where a cat is dead and alive at the same time, which of course Jesus says that he was dead and is alive evermore. And he was that one, he's the one that was and is and is to come. So I think there's an amazing convergence taking place. That's another sign that we're racing towards the end times. Brian Peterson is uh, with us, and his latest is The Final Nephilim, uh, previously, of course, Judgment of the Nephilim. That's the name of the uh, the website as well, judgmentofthenephilim.com. And um, remember, judgment with the – it's the American spelling. Uh, up here in Canada, we add that extra E in there, but the American spelling, J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T, and then of the Nephilim.com. And I've also linked up to Ryan's website at strangeplanet.ca. So just click on Ryan's name there in the uh, show description, and that'll take you right there. This idea of God existing outside time, so that uh, 10,000 of our days is, is uh, or is it 10,000 years? Ten, no, 10,000 days is one day for, for God, right? Exactly. And this idea that there's also something in the – and I'm trying to relate this back to quantum uh, physics as well. There's something in the Bible about the heavens unscrolling. Does that sound familiar? Sure. The heavens will roll up as a scroll. You know, that they actually – that at the time of the Great Tribulation when God is obviously revealing himself supernatural to the world, that they will – it says the heavens will roll up as a scroll and – I, I, I talked about in the book about this concept of the scroll of time, that time in the that time 
from the divine perspective, from the biblical perspective, rather than being linear, is really like a scroll. And I call it the scroll of time where events keep cycling over and over and over again. And I even look to what I think are four critical events from ancient biblical history that really help us decipher and decode the complex prophecies of Revelation. Like we already talked about Genesis 3.15, Genesis 6 in the days of Noah, the days of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Exodus. And I think what God is showing, again, is that these prophecies, these events, will prophetically ripple through time. And then yeah, I just want uh, – you know, I want to pursue that, those, those four events that will help us uh, – or, or how they foreshadow end times uh, judgment, but also help us sort of make sense of revelation. But I just wanted to add one more thing with those uh, those the references to scrolls. And I'm maybe I'm reaching too far here, but getting back to the idea of quantum uh, mechanics and so forth, it almost sounds like a reference to hyperdimensions. Yeah, and I think and I think in a way. Um, we kind of see that play out, I think, in terms of the dimension between the spiritual and the, and the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And when you think about it this way, you know, Jesus pointed, again, when we talk about this idea of the scroll of time, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And when you think about the days of Noah, what made it unique, among many other things, is that the... The dimensions were merged. The barrier that exists now, what I call the veil between the heavenly dimension and the earthly dimension, was open. You had angels marrying women. You had Adam and Eve who could speak to God in the Garden of Eden. When they were being judged, Adam and Eve were standing with the devil, all speaking to God and being judged for their sin in the Garden of Eden. So I think in terms of those dimensions being colliding, interdimensionality, I think the same thing is going to happen in the Great Tribulation, that once again, the dimensions are now going to merge and be open to each other. We will have in Revelation 9, we see that there are angels who are released from the abyss. You have Revelation 12, where Satan himself is cast down to earth. And the rest of the fallen angels are cast down to earth. They're expelled. They're evicted from heaven. And, and the Bible says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So we as humans that are alive in the Great Tribulation are going to be, to be able to see angels openly manifesting before us like in the days of Noah. Uh, so the um, in the days of Noah, the fallen angels, as you say, the ones who were eating, drinking, given in marriage, uh, this will repeat in the end times. Um, so what then, what was the, the purpose of the Genesis 6 invasion when uh, fallen angels came down at Mount Hermon and they, 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 they took the daughters of, of men? Incidentally, is it your um, belief that they took those daughters of men by force? Uh, were they willingly given over to the fallen angels? Was there perhaps some sort of an exchange of knowledge in return for? Yeah, exactly. I think I, I, I lean more towards it being more of a transaction. And I have a chapter in, in, in uh, Judgment of the Nephilim where I talk about the first family of the Nephilim. And I think Genesis chapter four um, reveals some interesting details, particularly about the descendants from Adam through the line, the lineage of Cain, who, of course, was the first son of Adam and Eve and who slew his brother Abel. And I talk about how if you look in the, if you look in the lineage of Cain, it has what I call a special reference where 
in the Bible, you normally see sometimes three generations described in one verse. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and so on. But then certain infamous figures in in, in antiquity are given multiple verses. So I think the Bible is drawing us to those people. And one figure in particular is Lamech, the Lamech, who is the wicked Lamech through the lineage of Cain, the seventh generation from Adam through Cain. And in his family, what I talk about is that what you see there is it describes three of his sons, uh, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. And in this family, you see a technological explosion. Jabal was the father of animal husbandry and tent making. Jubal was the inventor of instruments in the ancient world. And then you have Tubal-Cain, who was the father of blacksmithing, blacksmithing and metallurgy, making weapons and tools. So all they had all this knowledge given to them. And there's an interesting detail that says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And when you look to ancient sources, the belief uh, for centuries in the church is that Nema was offered as the first bride to the fallen angels and the first mother of a Nephilim giant. I mean, this divine exchange, this exchange of knowledge for a woman's hand in marriage. You mentioned Tubal-Cain, uh, who had the ability to do uh, blacksmithing and so forth. There, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but there, the one of the maybe it's in the Bible, I don't know, but the legend is that he forged this spear from a meteorite that had crashed to earth, the iron in the meteorite, he forged this spear and that spear ended up being the spear of Longines or the spear of destiny that was used by the Roman centurion to pierce Christ's side on the cross. Cross. That's kind of a, um, an aside, but is that true? Uh, I've definitely heard that. I mean, that's not, that's not in scripture, but that's definitely a part of the legends around Tubal Cain. And also, Another interesting fact that's not in the scripture, but also lends to this idea is that the god, the Roman god Vulcan, is believed to be derived from Tubal-Cain. In fact, the name Vulcan is just a derivative of the name Tubal-Cain. So uh, certainly he played a, a he was a, so he was worshipped in pagan culture. So he was someone who was a significant figure in antiquity uh, for many reasons. So it wouldn't surprise me if a weapon he made. Uh, at Forge at that time was treated as a cherished relic and eventually ended up in significant uh, role in history. Right. Everyone who supposedly possessed the Spear of Destiny uh, was unstoppable. Charlemagne uh, possessed it. Napoleon, I believe, possessed it. Um, I don't know if, if um, Hitler um, uh, possessed it uh, or a copy of it, but it's rumored that he did and that, it, that at one time it was housed in a, in a museum in uh, in vienna um we've got about just about a minute here before we uh, head on into a break at the bo- um at the next break and i just want just a quick uh, clarification um cain some people believe that cain was the seed of of satan that that was you know the the unforgivable sin that eve made in the garden of eden and that that that's how we get these two lines. Um, what are your thoughts? Is Cain the seed of of Satan? No, I don't believe Satan's had a seed yet. And I believe Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. And Eve even says her testimony after he's born is, I've gotten a man from the Lord. So I think that that kind of supports biblically that he was a born out of that, that their marriage as opposed to being the, the actual son of the devil. Not to right. mention God forgiving him and giving a, putting, putting a mark on him to protect him. You know, God protected Cain after he banished him from Eden. So I don't think God would do that for the seed of the serpent. 
All right, we'll take a, a quick time out. Ryan Peterson stays with us. Judgment of the Nephilim and his latest, the final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. I call it the miracle molecule, carbon-60 or C60, for my good friends at C60Evo.com. And I take a tablespoon every morning. It delivers more than 172 times the power of vitamin C. C60 is a known antiviral, antioxidant, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory. It's a remedy that works. C60 Evo users consistently enjoy better sleep and wake up feeling refreshed. This alone is worth the cost of the bottle. I sleep like a baby. I have no aches or pains. Zero. I'm 58, and I don't have a gray hair on my head. Get your miracle in a bottle. C60 from c60evo.com slash richard hyphen c60evo.com slash richard hyphen Use the coupon code EVRS at checkout and save an additional 10%. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you have a medical concern, please contact your healthcare provider. Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he said to buy. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go to YouTube and verify this for yourself. So, if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just one dollar. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're back with Ryan Peterson, biblical researcher, writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. And uh, his books are Judgment of the Nephilim and his latest final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com is uh, the website. Uh, incidentally, there's a um, there's about an hour-long documentary that accompanies the book. It's kind of a nice primer uh, for the book, Final Nephilim. How do we see the documentary? Sure. Uh, it's available on DVD at judgmentofthenephilim.com. It's also available uh, in digital on demand on Vimeo. You can find the links to that either search on Vimeo or just go to the website and click on the documentary on judgmentofnephilim.com. And there's a link that can take you to the digital version as well. All right. We, we actually covered quite a bit of ground in that, that first segment. Um, so I just want to drill down on a couple of aspects here. One is getting back to 
Genesis 6, the invasion of the Nephilim uh, to take these daughters of uh, man and and create these hybrids, uh, which were, of course, giants. Now, there's some dispute about whether they were actual giants. Where does that where is that dispute? Is it in the in the translation from the Hebrew or why do some biblical scholars dispute that they were actual giants? I think it's just uh, uh, the resistance to uh, acknowledge something, the supernatural aspects of Scripture. That's all there is. You know, when you look uh, at the testimony in uh, Numbers chapter 13, for example, when Joshua sends the, ten, the 12 spies and they say that we were as grasshoppers in their sight when they saw the sons of Anak. They saw three giants, right? And this was two weeks after the Exodus miracles, the plagues that God brought. God literally manifested before them and destroyed the most powerful empire on the planet, the Egyptian armies. And then two weeks later, they saw three Nephilim giants in the promised land and thought, God can't save us. Then you can look at even the the height of Goliath, who was six cubits in a span, probably eight to nine feet. Or in the book of Amos, where God himself speaking about the Amorite kings who were Nephilim, uh, Og of Bashan and Sihon, God says in the book of Amos, their height was as the height of the cedars. So I think there's enough biblical evidence to show that they were of supernatural size and strength. And so do we know how how quickly these hybrids basically uh, took over the um, the ancient world? I mean, how do we have any any handle on the, on their numbers, uh, where they lived, etc.? Yeah, sure. I think I think that, you know, when you look at I think from Scripture as well as uh, from the apocryphal text that in the days of. The patriarch Jared. So you're talking about a couple of centuries before we see Noah introduced in, Gen- in Genesis chapter six is when this incursion took place. And, uh, you know, we see by the time Noah is introduced in Scripture, God says that all flesh had corrupted itself. So so my, my reading of the text is that the Nephilim had overrun the world. They had taken the world over. The earth was filled with violence. And three times in Genesis 6, God says that all flesh had corrupted itself. So they had overrun humanity to the point that there was basically very few to any human beings left who were purely tamim, which is the word used to describe Noah, meaning perfectly human, without blemish, physically, genetically. And so uh, certainly by the days of Noah, which is why God to put a prohibition and said that he would only allow 120 years left on earth, um, they were close to wiping out pretty much all of humanity. That's why only eight people were even on the ark. So they came incredibly close to fully corrupting uh, the human race and genome. And, and so how how did the, the Satan and the Nephilim – uh, or well, Satan's plan to corrupt the, uh, mankind. How did they believe that would forestall the coming of the seed of the woman, Jesus? Sure, I think that because the Messiah was prophesied to be a human, it wasn't going to be a legion of angels; going to be a human child. I think the I think Satan's plan was to either destroy that child or corrupt. Human humanity to the point that we be something other than image bearers of God, that if we were not fully human anymore, then we could no longer be redeemed. I think it was about disqualifying us genetically, because if you think about salvation, our salvation is spiritual and physical. Our bodies matter. We're, even though we receive a new body, there's a there's a physical aspect to our 
our redemption. And we're even called a part of the body of Christ. So I think that if we could, if Satan could corrupt our genetics, we'd then just be disqualified. The Messiah couldn't even be born. If all flesh were corrupted, that would include the animals, would it not? A- absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's amazing when you look at, uh, you know, the, the, the writings of uh, church theologians from the first and second centuries, like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, they allude to the fact that when you look in Greek mythology and see creatures like the Minotaur, the Centaur, that are half bull, half man, half horse, half man, that these were all based on what took place in Genesis 6, that the animals themselves were also a part of this genetic hybrid hybridization program that the fallen angels were carrying out. So uh, I've brought this up a number of times over the years. Uh, it's, it's always perplexed me how the God of the Old Testament would order the Israelites to go into villages and smite entire villages, every man, woman, and child. And that does, you know, does not sort of equate with the loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. But it does make sense if what we're talking about are entire villages comprised of of Nephilim, right? Is that is that why he ordered all of that smiting? Precisely. And this is so important. And this is why understanding the supernatural Genesis 6, uh, supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6 is so important because it, all of a sudden the wars in Canaan make sense. Because these were, what I lay out is that when you look at scripture's details, these were targeted offenses. They were targeting seven specific nations that were all the descendants of Canaan, who I believe was the the, the forefather of the post-Diluvian giants, and is about eradicating the remnant of the Nephilim after the flood, the Nephilim giant that we that we see in the Promised Land, the sons of Anak, Goliath, uh, the other giants there. So this is what. So it, rather than it being God acting irrational and just arbitrarily committing genocide, it was a rescue. It was preserving humanity from this contamination and from losing our only chance at redemption. So I'm guessing that at a certain point, you know, you had the fallen angels, they, they with human women, they produced giants, and then maybe those giants would intermarry with other humans. Uh, so gradually, you know, maybe they became smaller in stature, but they still contained uh, fallen angel blood. But let's say, you know, four, five, six generations removed from that, and you're the child of, uh, and you're one of your ancestors is Nephilim, and you've got a little bit of of um, fallen angel blood in you, does that mean that you are beyond redemption? Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think that you know what we see in scripture is that basically by the time of the the reign of King David, that that's and his mighty men, his elite soldiers, who they kind of they vanquished the final giants mentioned in scripture. And from that point on, you see two things. One, after the, the last giant uh, Nephilim in, in the Bible is described, is it's just called the Egyptian. And he's killed by one of David's mighty men. And the very next chapter, Satan himself is a Satan tempted David to take a census. So it's almost like now that his hybrids were gone, the devil himself had to spring into action to try and attack Israel. The second thing we notice is that from that point on, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are no longer any commands to wipe out or smite whole nations or attack people. That offensive command from God to do what's called the karem in Hebrew, the ban to eliminate cultures, that's gone. So I think that that 
uh, at least from God's perspective, the Nephilim genes and uh, DNA was wiped out to the point that it was no longer a threat. So there's no longer a need for that type of offensive war. So this attempt by uh, Satan to corrupt the entire human uh, bloodline to thwart uh, the birth of uh, the Savior, Jesus Christ, that obviously is thwarted by God through the flood where, you know, he basically he he hit the big reset button, not Klaus Schwab's reset button, but basically decided let's, we're going to get everybody out of the pool and we're chlorinating and we're going to start over again. Um, so then – What's the what's the next strategy? Uh, that one failed. What's Satan's next end game? Sure, the next end game is the the final Nephilim, the Antichrist, and what his purpose is is uh, it's it really again tied to prophecy. You know, Jesus said to Israel at his first before before his crucifixion, he said, "You shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord.'" So. The return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is is inextricably linked to the end times redemption of Israel. That Israel will have to turn and acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. And Zechariah says, "You will look upon him as one as a son who was pierced." So they're going to realize that he was the Messiah. That, that Jesus, who was crucified on the cross two thousand years ago, is the Son of God, and they will repent, and there will be a believing remnant. And that is what will trigger the return of Christ. This is the testimony of prophecy. And so the Antichrist is trying to stand in between that and and lure Israel into worshiping him. He is Satan's false messiah who will come to try and deceive. You know, this is what the scripture calls the strong delusion to deceive Israel into believing that this is the this is the messiah when it's the Antichrist. And once again, if not deceive them, corrupt them uh, via the mark of the beast. All right, that's where we'll uh, pick up on the other side. We'll take another time out. Ryan Peterson, the final Nephilim, stays with us back with more of our conversation right after these. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Have you subscribed to my newsletter yet? It's fast, easy, and absolutely free. Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then click on subscribe. All I need is your email address, and that's it. Then, once a month, you'll receive my newsletter, Inner Sanctum, in your email inbox. The Inner Sanctum contains a monthly brief, a column of my analysis of the news and opinions. There's a This Month in UFO or Conspiracy History, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of this radio program, a book club, my podcast pick of the month, a spotlight on a previous guest, and much more. Join the Strange Planet community by signing up for your free subscription to Inner Sanctum. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on subscribe. It's a strange planet. Read all about it. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. They have no competition. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. I can't get enough of my pomegranate super tea. I brew two gallons at a time and let it steep in the fridge overnight, enough to last me the entire week. And every morning I have a 16-ounce glass of this amazing GMO non-caffeinated herbal tea. It keeps me regular by providing a gentle cleanse 
every day. I'm never gassy or bloated, and good health begins with a healthy gut. This pomegranate super tea is not available in any store. You need to go to getthetea.com. Go to getthetea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED, and all your orders ship for free. All of them. It's time to get your tea from getthetea.com. Welcome back. So we were talking about how the first plan to thwart the arrival of Jesus Christ failed after the uh, the flood judgment. So then the second game was, okay, so Jesus is coming again. We have to forestall that by what? uh, Destroying the state of Israel or preventing – actually, no, not destroy the state of Israel, but preventing – the reconciliation of all things and prevent is israelites from crying out and accepting jesus the second time satan has to insert a usurper into the mix right and distract israel and prevent them from recognizing the real messiah so we have this concept of the false messiah do i have that right exactly exactly when the antichrist comes onto the scene uh, the testimony of scripture is that he will appear to be their deliverer he's going to appear to be the uh, savior that they in leader they've been waiting for. He's going to restore temple worship. You know, this is the testimony in the book of Daniel. It says that there will be uh, sacrifice and oblation in the temple. We see the the goods in Revelation 17 18 that are being sent to Mystery Babylon. It talks about uh, fabrics, purple, scarlet, cinnamon, gold, ivory. All of these are specific items you will see in the book of Exodus and Leviticus used for temple worship. And they're sent in abundance. They're shipped in abundance from all, all over the world. So he will appear to be a, a benevolent Jewish Messiah. And of course, at the midpoint, uh, once he's lured uh, the world into believing in him, he will then betray them and declare himself to himself to be God. You know, as we see, you know, going into the temple of proclaiming himself to be God and abandoning any pretense of being a Messiah for them at all. And he will also wage war against Israel's enemies to make it look like he is Israel's friend, when of course he will ultimately betray Israel. So some people during the Trump administration suggested the, that the Abraham Accords was part of this false peace. First, um, the Antichrist pretending to be the Messiah will will make war against Israel's neighbors. Does this necessarily mean that that the Antichrist will be uh, a, a politician in Israel, or could he be from the United Nations? Or where do you think? What theater will he come from? Yeah, I think he could be. A, I think those are the only two options: that either he is a leader uh, of the government of Israel, or he's a leader of a body like the United Nations, where he could have the authority to do take that type of action. Because again, uh, as you stated. In addition to the religious revival that he's going to institute for the Israelites, he's also going to wage war against against Israel's neighbors. So this is going to be the time. This is what Daniel chapter 11 says, that he's going to the, the liberate essentially the Middle East to, to, of, of the, the centuries-long enemies of Israel. And of course, that will be another deception to make them think that he is their savior. And he's going to build the third, he's going to order the construction of the third temple? Definitely. So, you know, uh, Daniel chapter 9 is a very, the prophecy of Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, is a very complex prophecy. And like, for example, some people think that when it says that he will, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant, many people think that refers to a peace treaty. I don't. I believe that the covenant, the term covenant in the Old Testament almost 
almost universally refers to the Mosaic Covenant. And so, and that chapter speaks of another temple, that there'll be sacrifice and oblation in the temple. You get to uh, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. It tells you that the time of the, from the time of the cleansing of the temple. So again, there's clearly going to be a third temple that the Antichrist will set up and allow Levitical priestly worship for the first three and a half years of the seven-year Great Tribulation. One would, the, one would uh, expect, though, that uh, the construction of the third temple would, would cause yet another war uh, because, you know, the, um, uh, the mosque there, the, uh, the remnants of the second temple and so forth, it's such disputed territory that any attempt and – and also right now my understanding is that, that uh, in Israel, I mean, they have no desire to build a third temple because they understand that what that would, what that would entail and, and that it would cause so much strife. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, correct. Definitely. Uh, the, the, the current – I'd say that for the most part of Israel, like, that is the current uh, situation and feeling about a third temple. And certainly it would cause an immediate conflict. But again, we have to understand that the Antichrist, it says that in Scripture, he's going to come in with all lying signs and wonders. So he's going to present himself – in a way that no leader has to Israel since Jesus Christ was on the earth. And so when he, and I think that's what's going to over, is going to win them over. And in terms of the conflict with the Arab Muslims by putting the temple in, I think there will be a conflict. And in, and again, the book of Daniel says he's going to overwhelm the, the enemies of Israel. So I think there will have to be military conflict to set up that temple, but ultimately he will plant his tabernacle between the seas. And so and so he will have that temple built. And, and, and at the same time, while wiping out Israel's enemies and also presenting himself supernaturally, because he's going to be have supernatural cult powers via the devil. Last question, and then we'll head into another break. This was a short segment. Doesn't the Antichrist have to convince not just the Jews that he is their long-awaited Messiah? Doesn't he also have to convince the world's Muslims uh, that he is the 12th Imam? Doesn't he have to convince the world's Buddhists that he is? Uh, is it the compassionate Buddha? He has to convince Christians that he is you know, uh, our Messiah? Does, how is he going to be all things to all people? Sure, I think that takes place at the midpoint, and I think that this is where you know, again, in I get into detail on this in, in the final Nephilim that he the thing that wins the world over is in Revelation 13, verse four, when he suffers a deadly wound, he will actually be killed and the world will know this and see him come back to life. I'm going to jump right in here. Point. Pardon the interruption, Ryan. Yep. We've got to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll pick up right on that point. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. Brian Peterson stays with us. The final Nephilim, judgmentofthenephilim.com, and you can screen the uh, the video, or you can purchase, rather, the DVD at judgmentofthenephilim.com. Uh, the, the the video, the documentary that kind of serves as a uh, a nice accompaniment piece to uh, the book, the final Nephilim. So we were talking about the uh, the Antichrist and how he will have these supernatural powers, which will help him to manipulate and convince the masses that he is the Messiah. So, and I was saying that he's going to have to be be all things to all people. He'll have to be the twelfth Imam to the Muslims and the compassionate Buddha to the Buddhists and Messiah to the Jews and the Messiah to to Christians and so forth. And uh, you were saying that 
is Lollapalooza trick that's that he's going to use to convince everyone is basically his own resurrection, which is a total you know mockery of the real resurrection. So tell me about that. It involves a mortal head wound. Exactly. He will receive a, a mortal wound to the head and the world will be clearly aware of this. And he will come back to life. It is truly a, a, a satanic mimicry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because you see the, the testimony from Revelation 13, verse 4, is that's when the world says, who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? That's what wins the whole world over to see him as God, see him as the Messiah. And then let's not forget also that he's not alone, that the, that the Antichrist is also joined by the false prophet who will be the religious kind of prime minister winning people over to worship and pointing people to worship the Antichrist. And one deal, one detail about the false prophet we, we don't discuss enough, I think, is the fact that he has the power to call fire down from heaven, which all through the Old Testament was a sign of God's approval. God would send fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice. He did it at the dedication of the temple during Solomon's time. He did it at the announcement of the birth of Samson. Is numerous times that was a sign of God's actual approval of something, and the false prophet would be able to do this before the world. So there'd be many lying signs and wonders to win over not just the Jews, but also the, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the atheists. I always say there are no atheists in the Great Tribulation. So these supernatural signs will win over people of all religions. This um, lieutenant, if you will, of the Antichrist, is he kind of a the converse of John the Baptist, like a forerunner? Exactly, yeah. So I think he's a, a converse of John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit, right? They form a satanic trinity, you know, the Satan being the father, Antichrist being the son, and the false prophet being the Holy Spirit. But yes, but just as John the Baptist pointed people to Christ, that is what the false prophet is here to do. He's going to use miracles, and he says that he he has horns of a dragon, but he speaks as a lamb. So he's going to use persuasive speech, persuasive sermons, and supernatural power to point everyone to worship, and eventually even make the image of the beast. So he's also going to be aided and abetted by the apostate rebels, right? They're going to be released from the abyss where they were um, after they were destroyed in the flood and and um, locked in this bottomless pit. They're going to be released, and this is going to coincide with the sounding of the fifth trumpet in Revelation. Is that right? Exactly. And the fifth trumpet, I believe, is the midpoint. That is the so at the point that the Antichrist suffers this mortal wound and then comes back to life. I believe that coincides with the opening of the bottomless pit, the abyss that we see in Revelation chapter 9 at the fifth trumpet, when the star falls from heaven, which I believe is Satan, and is able to give given the key to the pit to open it. And then these beings, they're called locusts, but I believe these are the, these are the return of the sons of God of Genesis 6 who've been locked in the abyss under change of darkness for millennia. Now they are released and they are going to torment the unsaved world. But at the same time, again, when we think of this concept of this repetition in the scroll of time, it's like the flood. The end times flood is going to be you're going to have fallen angels coming from the abyss. But also you have the rebel angels that remained in heaven who did not commit the Genesis 6 sin and the devil. They are cast out of heaven permanently. So you have just just as in the days of Noah, you had the waters coming from the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. You're going to have angels coming from heaven and fallen angels coming out of the abyss. And uh, one amazing detail I point to is Hippolytus in the, the oldest extant writing on Revelation. It's called the Treatise on Christ and Antichrist, written in 202 AD. Hippolytus writes this scene, says about these angels coming down from heaven. It says, imagine them 
bathed in beautiful light, levitating above the earth, singing with beautiful angelic voices and appearing to be benevolent, kind beings and pointing the world to say, here is your Messiah and it's the Antichrist. Does that parallel perhaps something to do with, I don't know, UFO disclosure? This will be uh, sort of masked. This fallen angel invasion will be masquerading as uh, UFOs and ETs coming here to save us from ourselves? Exactly. I think that if there's there's ever an opportunity for the, the full manifestation of the ufo phenomenon it's going to be at that point when those angels are coming down from heaven because we don't know how they're going to present themselves and if you know hippolytus was inclined to believe they're going to be benevolent and what if they just say yes they're benevolent beings but they say we're from another planet we seated you on this planet seven thousand years ago and now we've returned to help you advance to your next stage of evolution or something of that sort i think that's the window for the devil to really use a UFO alien scenario to further deceive the world. So here's something that's always confused me, Ryan, and and I'm glad you're here because I hope you can sort this out for me. So Satan is cast out of heaven and and he comes down to earth and he's got the key to the bottomless uh, pit and he unlocks the the prison cell. And so we have all of the uh, apostate rebels coming up not that they're not the nephilim they're the i guess the forefathers of the nephilim they're coming up from below you've got the fallen angels coming down from from above so antichrist has this immediate army but i thought that satan was cast out of heaven long before that yeah no no he 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 was not he was not and we and we see examples of this uh in 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 the book of job right we see in job chapters one and chapter two that satan can appear before the throne of God. It says he appears before the throne of God with the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, that he's there speaking to God. And God says, from where have you come from? He says, going to and fro in the earth. So he still has access on, on God in his wisdom has allowed the devil uh, access into heaven to speak to him. And in fact, it seems like he spends a great deal of time there because in Revelation 12, when he's cast out, it says that he's the accuser of the brethren who stands before God accusing believers day and night so he spends a great deal of time in heaven when he's not roaming the earth ah okay so then but it was satan in the garden why wouldn't god have kicked him out long before uh if he saw you know that he was already hatching this big scheme sure i think ultimately that god is demonstrating his plan of salvation and his word being true not just to humanity, but to all the angels. I believe that what's we're in the midst. Humanity has been thrust into a conflict that predates us. And I think what God is doing, he's allowing these events to play out the devil to work his plan while God works, shows that his way and his word is true for millennia. So, so even the devil being allowed into heaven, even the devil being allowed to to be to live at all, not just being cast to the abyss, to still operate in the earth and corrupt and tempt humanity. I think it's all about God showing, proving something. And we get hints of this in scripture where it says that when it comes to our salvation, that these are matters that the angels are looking into. So I think that ultimately God is proving one, that his word is true, and that two, that Satan's way will never work in the end. And also maybe God lift by the credo, keep your enemies closer. But <laughs> the fallen angels of Genesis 6 that came down, were they cast out or did they come down on their own their own volition? I believe they came on their own volition. And I think that the the, the attempt, they just chose, again, out of lust. It says that they saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they uh, abused, obviously, their authority by taking human women as wives. And I think what's interesting is that to show the severity of their sin, think about the fact that the devil 
is still free to roam and enter heaven. But those angels were locked away immediately to never see the light of day until the Great Tribulation. All right. Now you've provided a great deal of uh, clarity for me. Thank you for that. That timeline has always uh, confused me. So the other thing, we just got a a couple minutes here before we break at the top of the hour. And uh, Brian Peterson stays with us into hour two, and we'll open up the uh, the phone lines as well. And we'll take questions from the uh, YouTube live stream. And that is, it's it's interesting. You talk about these uh, parallels or or ripples and repetition. Uh, these locusts emerging from the pit. They look like locusts uh, that were locked away. And then this, the smoke coming up. It's also the, the parallels between this and the plagues of Egypt. Absolutely. In, in fact, I, I have a chapter called The Second Exodus in the book because the Great Tribulation really is a dynamic repetition of the Exodus. You have the, the locust beings. You have the darkness of the smoke that comes out. You have water turning to blood. You have um, uh, sores that appear on the skin of those who have, t- have taken the mark of the beast. So it's really God, again, uh, again, showing this dynamic quantum repetition, the scroll of time playing out where, again, just as Pharaoh was judged, the Antichrist is going to be judged in a similar manner and defeated uh, by the Lord. All right. Hour two coming up. Ryan Peterson of Final Nephilim and uh, your questions and comments. Don't go away. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. If you're a fan of this radio program and the Strange Planet podcast, why not show it off by wearing Strange Planet apparel or drinking from a Strange Planet mug? Check out all the great Strange Planet merch in my Strange Planet shop. Just go to the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on Shop in the menu. There's a huge selection of men's and women's t-shirts. You like crop circles or the Mayan calendar? Gotcha covered. Are you into the Anunnaki? Wait till you see these designs. My favorite right now, lions do not lose sleep over the opinions of sheep. And one of our best sellers right now, Truth Gets You Crucified on the front and a passage from Matthew chapter 23 on the back. So many great t-shirt designs, I don't know where to begin. There's women's leggings and tote bags and, of course, mugs. Great gifts for family and friends who listen and love this show. My Strange Planet shop. Visit today and often. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and check it out. 